thanks, Skyler. Well, welcome to all of you. It's good to see you here today. You know, a healthy family is an amazing thing. When you have a healthy family, you have members of that family in a permanent relationship with each other. And there's this, this security and there's this nourishment and this satisfaction from knowing that there are other people in your life permanently who would do anything humanly possible to help you in your time of need. Think about the power, for example, of having an older brother like that. Not all older brothers are like that, right? I mean, you've got the parable of the prodigal son, after all, the older brother. Not very stellar, right? But some of you are older brothers like that. Some of you have older brothers like that. They protect you. They look out for you. They would do anything humanly possible for you. I have two older brothers. I have a younger brother also, but... My two older brothers, I mean, we're all in our 60s, and still there are times when they call me little brother. Hey, little brother, how you doing? We, my brothers and I Zoom with our mom every Monday night, our 92-year-old mom. We Zoom every Monday night, and it's very common that one of my older brothers will say, Stevie, how are you doing? They forgot health concerns. I've got many. And they're always asking, how are you doing with that? Or if they know something's going on with one of my kids, how's Riley doing? What's Chrissy? How's she doing with that, that situation? And it just means the world to me, I mean, knowing that I've got a, an older brother like that. And if you have that type of relationship, you know, you want your older brother to protect you. You even want to let him sacrifice for you. That's what you do in a healthy family. It's that type of give and take. You let them do for you things that you cannot do for yourself. In today's passage, Jesus is described as the older brother of all who believe in him. And he is the older brother, and it says it basically at Christmas. He became one of us so that he could be our older brother. He could do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the question that we're going to see is on the table today is not whether or not Jesus is willing, not whether or not Jesus is able to rescue us and protect us and help us as our older brother. The question on the table is, will we let him do so in time and for eternity? In this year's Advent series, we're exploring passages of scriptures which describe what was on the heart and the mind of God at the first Christmas. Last week, we looked at at Philippians 2, and we saw that humility was on the mind of Christ at at the first Christmas. Philippians 2 said he started out in the highest of heights, equality with God in heaven, and he took the plunge to the lowest of lows. He died, even the death on a cross for us. Humility was on his mind. Today's passage, we're going to see that family was also on the mind of Christ, the family of God. Jesus became one of us so that he could rescue the children of God, his brothers from death and sin, the fear of death. And so uh, I hope that today that this passage gives you this, this willingness and this desire to receive from Jesus our elder brother, what he wants to give us. Again, let's, uh, let's consider the, <clears throat> as we do every week, let's consider the context of Hebrews 2, 14 through 16, or 14 through 18. 
The author of Hebrews is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. They were Jews who had believed in Jesus, and so they were followers of Jesus, but persecution had come, and they were being tempted to abandon Jesus and go back to Judaism. Their lives would have been a lot simpler, a lot easier if they would do that. The persecution would evaporate, and now they'd fit right in again. But the author is is challenging them throughout the book. He says, if you do that, if you abandon Jesus, you are abandoning what is far superior to what is inferior. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything you're going back to. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the temple, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, everything. It may be hard to, to persevere and remain faithful to Christ, faithful to Christ, but it's absolutely worth it. Now, the argument of Hebrews 1 and 2 is especially fascinating, and Hebrews 1 and 2 reflects this hierarchy that you found you find all the way through the Bible, namely that at the top you have God, then angels, then humans. God is, un- is the only uncreated being in the universe. At some point in time, he created angels, and angels are powerful, beautiful, intelligent, spiritual beings. They're spiritual in the sense that they don't have a body. They can take on human form at times, but they don't have bodies. Uh, They're spiritual beings. I like the way Michael Heiser says it. He says, God had a family in heaven before he had a family on earth. The, the, The angels around his throne are called the sons of God. And so God He created the angels, and then he created humanity. He created us male and female in his image. And in contrast with angels, we were created with bodies. And uh, to humans, not angels, we're given dominion over all of creation now and in the age to come. And so there will be a time when redeemed humanity... Is, is no longer lower than the angels, but we are reigning with Christ, and we're reigning the entire new creation with him. Uh, Paul made this offhanded comment in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you even know that we will judge angels? In other words, you should be more competent than this, right? And so that's what's going to happen. We're going to reign with Christ. But there's the problem. Sin entered the human race. And now we all sin by nature and by choice. We sin by nature. Nobody has to teach you how to sin. We just do it naturally. And then we sin by choice. We choose to sin. And so if we're going to have a right relationship with God in this life, and if we're going to reign with Christ in the next life, sin has to be defeated. Death has to be defeated in our lives. And that's exactly why Jesus became one of us at the first Christmas. Hebrews 2.9 tells us that for a little while, turns out it was about 33 years, for a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels so that he might, quote, taste death for everyone, meaning humanity. And listen as I read Hebrews 2 verses 10 through 13, the passage just proceeding. Am I going in and out here a little bit? You can hear me? Okay. Uh, this passage just before our passage. Listen to the family language that, that the author uses here. Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 13, he talks about sons, brothers, and children. So family was on Jesus' mind when he became one of us. Hebrews 2, 10, for it was fitting that he, 
God for whom and by things by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation that's Jesus perfect through suffering for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers he is not ashamed to call those who believe in him brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. And that reference to children can either refer to to believers as children of God or, in a sense, children of Jesus, those that look to Jesus as their, as their, their father tend to think it's talking about children of God, the family of God. But the next five verses emphasize that the incarnation was an expression of Jesus' commitment to us as family. And so Jesus becoming one of us, it wasn't some sterile obligation that Jesus had, some I have to do on a technicality, I've got to become a human to die for humans. No, he came as our older brother, who wanted to make this sacrifice, who wanted to help us in ways that we could never, ever help ourselves. And so that's, that's the tone, that's the spirit of what we're going to read. And so we see two points. First of all, in verses 14 through 16, we see that Jesus took on flesh and blood to deliver God's family from death and from the fear of death. Notice the logic in verses 14 through 16 there. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." And so that last comment, you're like, where does that come from? Well, Jesus did not become an angel to die for the sins of fallen angels. Angels who rebel against God, as far as we know, are permanently in that state for all eternity. Rather, he became lower than the angels so that he could die for humanity, so that humans might be reconciled to God and God's family on earth might be elevated above the angels, and might reign with him for eternity. And so back in verse 14, the author mentions the children. And again, that's the, a reference to verse 13, in which Jesus speaks of the children that God had given him. And so he makes the point that, therefore, since the children were in such a desperate condition that they could never resolve, Jesus became like them in order to deliver them. Because we were dead in our sins, Jesus became one of us that he might die for us and give us new life. Specifically, he says, or he took on, took on flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. And so in Scripture, the devil is kind of the boss of the fallen angels. He is the highest one. He's the one who gives the order. He the mastermind of everything that the demonic realm does. Uh, Satan first appeared in Genesis 3. God had commanded the first couple, you can eat of any tree of the garden, 
except this one. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Satan arrives on the scene and he says, basically, that was an empty threat. That is not the case. You will surely not die. As a matter of fact, when you eat of that tree, you will become like God. You will get an upgrade in your life. Well, it was not an idle threat. And so when Satan successfully tempted the first couple, they immediately died spiritually. They would eventually die physically. And now the entire human race is under the same sentence of death. And because of that deception, the devil, in a sense, has the power of death. And so Jesus took on flesh and blood, became our older brother, that through death he might destroy the devil who has the power of death over the children that God had given him. And we find this described in other places. 1 John 3, 8 tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. By his death and resurrection, Jesus defeated Satan. And that victory is, is made effective in the life of everyone who believes in him, believes that his death paid for their sin and that he was raised on the third day. Ephesians 2.5, Paul wrote that even when we were dead in our trans, trans, trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so Jesus is our elder brother. He became one of us to be our elder brother, defeat death. But there's more. When he died, he also, let's read in verse 15, He said that through death, Jesus wanted to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I haven't, I've never met a person who claimed I will never die physically. I've never met anybody that claims that. I've I've met some people that want to live to be 150. I'm not sure why, but but, uh, nobody ever says I'm not going to die. But I do know people that would say, I have no fear of death. Now, talk to people who are basically pure materialists. They believe that we're only material, a human is only a material being, that there's no immaterial being that survives death. And they believe that when you die, poof, that's the end of it. You, you no longer exist. So why would you be afraid of that? But I suspect, and I've, I've talked with people that, firmly believe this, but I suspect that there are times when they wake up in the middle of the night and they wonder, what if I'm wrong? What if I do have a soul? What if I'm going to spend eternity somewhere? I think there's, it's instinctive for, for most people that we are eternal beings. We instinctively know that there's a life beyond the grave. Ecclesiastes tells us that God has placed eternity within our hearts. And that knowledge, that knowledge that we are eternal beings can be terrifying. There's this fear of death. What will happen? How can I have this certainty that I'm going to spend eternity in God with with joy and not apart from him in terror? And it can legitimately, accurately be, be described, as the author puts it, as a lifelong slavery to the fear of death. The author of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus 
took on flesh and blood so that by his death, he might deliver us from this fear of death. And down through the centuries, you have believers in every culture who have come to faith in Christ that have been born from above and have this newfound freedom from the fear of death. And many of you, many of us in this room would say that. There was a time when I was just terrified what happens when I die. But that's no longer the case because Jesus is my older brother. And he came and he sacrificed for me. He defeated death so that I don't have to fear death. And death is is still an enemy. It's an enemy because it separates us from the people we love. It's an enemy because it separates us from our bodies. One day that will be reversed. That's called the resurrection. We're given a glorious body, a resurrected body. Death is still an enemy, but it does not have the last word in the life of believers. It's like a bee with the stinger removed. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's no longer there. Some of you know Eric and Heidi DeWolf. Some of the family is here, is here today. Eric and Heidi are in, uh, at Mayo Clinic. Uh, Eric is being treated for throat cancer. He's getting chemo and radiation. His medical team is, is very optimistic about the outcome of this treatment, but it's a long road. It's, it's a painful road. And Heidi is, is writing a blog. She's keeping us updated on what's happening. And this past week, she wrote, a, she wrote a blog post. She's a wonderful, wonderful writer. She wrote a blog post about Eric's faith in Christ and his confidence beyond the grave. And Eric gave me the permission to, uh, Eric and Heidi gave me permission to read a portion of what she wrote this week. I just want to share it with you because it makes this point in a very, very poignant way. And this is what, part of what Heidi wrote. She said, our caregiver, one caregiver of a friend here, commented on Eric's demeanor at the clinic. This caregiver said, I thought he was the nurse when I met him talking to my brother. He's so calm and kind. He has the same diagnosis as my brother, but he's not falling apart. Then she said, I smiled, calm and kind. Those two words could not be more accurate. Yes, sometimes his internal storm has a moment And I see a little lightning, maybe hear a little thunder, but I know where his strength comes from. Who is calm and kind when facing a fight with cancer? Someone who shows up daily to get what he doesn't have from one who has everything he needs. Heidi continues, we've talked with many people here at, at Mayo about what they believe about life, especially what happens after death. Death is very real and particularly present here. We share this in common. We all die. Showing up is not optional. The variety of thoughts on this is fascinating. The word religion comes up a lot, mostly in regards to having it or not. But this is very insightful. She says, very few have mentioned relationship as something they cling to for life after death. I know Eric relies on his relationship with Jesus to make it through each day. No matter the outcome of this fight, his relationship with Jesus will bring him home as a son to his father. Not because Eric is calm and kind, or does enough good to win approval, or tries hard enough to make the world a better place, 
when death comes, and it will, Eric will cling to Jesus' willingness to show up for him because Jesus loves him. Jesus loves him enough to be found in human form, live a perfect life on his behalf, willingly die a cruel death also on his behalf, and be raised back to life for Eric's sake. How will Jesus not also give him everything he needs to show up today? Isn't that perfect? Jesus became one of us. He became our older brother so that he could defeat the fear of death and death himself for his brother, Eric, and for you and for me. In John 1.12, we read it earlier, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And so Jesus came. It was his family mission. He had brothers that needed to be rescued. And he takes away the fear of death because he defeats death and its author, it's himself. If you believe and become a child of God, you are delivered from the fear of death and death itself. The other thing we see in this passage is that Jesus took on flesh and blood to become a high priest for God's family. Verse 17 again picks up one of these family terms, namely brothers from earlier in Hebrew 2, stressing again that Jesus had family on his mind at the first Christmas. Verse 17, he says, therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of of the people. And so that mention of brothers there in verse 12 takes us back to verses, uh, in verse 17, takes us back to verses 11 and 12, where the author writes that Jesus is not ashamed to call those who believe in him brothers. He's not ashamed. There's no shame there. He's not ashamed of his, his younger brothers. And then he quotes Psalm 22, where the Messiah tells God the Father, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. And so there's, there's the point here is there's just nothing reluctant. There's nothing that he, he regrets about calling us his brothers. There's nothing he regretted about this mission of becoming one of us to die for us. No, he's the big brother that would do anything he could do for the sake of his family. He did that. Since Jesus was made like us in every respect, we read here he was able to do two things for us as a high priest. First, we see he was able to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a great word. It's hard to say. Use it in a sentence five times this week, okay? Propitiation. It simply means that the the wrath of God was satisfied as our propitiation He satisfied the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin. And I know you may not like the idea of the wrath of God, but it's found throughout the Bible. And so we deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. And Jesus willingly, as our older brother, as our high priest, he was the propitiation for our sins. In the Old Covenant, the high priest would go, go into the Holy of Holies, the inner, innermost chamber in the, the temple, and he would offer an animal sacrifice once a year. 
but it was not a permanent atonement for sin because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away the sins of humans permanently. But Jesus, he became one of us. He became our older brother, who is also a high priest who went into the heavenly holies of ho- holy of holies. And he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, the once for all sacrifice of sin that would permanently take away, satisfy the wrath of God for all who believe in him. And as such, he did it for us willingly. There's no reluctance. That was what he wanted as our older brother. And second, because he was made like us in every respect, we read in verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so because he was made like us in every respect, it means that he actually gained something by becoming one of us. He, has, he now has this experiential knowledge of what we go through. Specifically, it says he suffered in what he was tempted. Uh, and, and I think you probably agree if you think about it. Suffering, uh, temptation is a kind of suffering. You're like, oh, this is horrible. You know, you know one of the quickest ways to get rid of temptation? Just give in to it, okay? And poof, it's like, okay, I'm satisfied. I'm fine now for a while. The point of the author here is that Jesus never did that. He never said, enough suffering. I'm not going to suffer anymore. I'm going to give in and get, get this over with. For example, when he was on the cross, he was, tempted to, he was tempted to take revenge. I mean, he was hanging there bleeding, and people just walked by. These, these humans, there were Roman, Roman soldiers, there were Jewish authorities, there were just random people walking by, and they reviled him, they insulted him, they slandered him. And you know what you would do in that case? I know what I would do. I would slander in return. I'd give them what they gave me. He never did that. We're told in First Peter, instead, he entrusted himself to God. He never returned evil for evil, insult for insult. He suffered, and he entrusted himself to God. Because he suffered when tempted, without sinning, he is uniquely qualified to help us when we're tempted. You can find somebody else who, who is tempted the same way you are and who gives in. I mean, you can find that person. That person will be able to empathize, but they probably won't be able to help you. Jesus, on the other hand, because he never gave in, he suffered the full brunt of temptation. He is able to come to our aid when we are tempted. He successfully negotiated the temptation that we face, and he's willing to help us learn to do the same. Look over in Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. He says this. This is a great double negative. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is willing and he's able to help us in our time of need. 
And so here we're told that we receive that. One of the ways, maybe the primary way, is, is by going to the throne of grace and asking for mercy, asking for help. And it's the throne of grace. And so nothing is being sold at the throne of grace. You can't barter for anything at the throne of grace. If you want something for the throne of grace, it is free. And we're supposed to come boldly because of Christ and ask God to give us the help that we need. Again, he's our older brother. He would do anything for us. And so first and foremost, we go to him in prayer. And, uh, and we also... And, and so we can also go through scriptures. But the question on the table is whether or not we're going to let Jesus, our older brother and our high priest, help us in time of temptation. That's the question on the table. Not whether he's willing, not whether he's able. The question is whether we're willing to let him help us. And so are, are you willing to go to God and, and, and plead with him? for the mercy and the grace that you need? Are you going to go to Scripture and saturate your mind with the words of Christ? Let them, let them infuse your thinking and even your feeling so that he has the loudest voice in your life. Or are you going to say to him, honestly, thanks, but no thanks. I think I'll handle this on my own or not, but I don't want your help. Well, today we come to the Lord's table, and it gives us an opportunity to come into the presence of God and remember that Jesus became one of us as an expression of his commitment to us as family. He took on flesh and blood because we are flesh and blood people, and we had no way to get rid of our sin. We had no way to get rid of death, the, the, the sentence of death and the fear of death. Our older brother did that for us, and he's willing to help us in every temptation that we face. So my encouragement to you as we come to the Lord's table is to bring God your greatest need. What is your greatest need here today? Honestly, have you got it in your mind? If you're not yet a child of God, if Jesus is not yet your older brother by faith, that is far and away your greatest need You need to come to him and confess that you've sinned. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And and this would be a fantastic day to do that. This would be a fantastic day for you to do that. Turn to him, turn from sin and repentance, turn to him in faith, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. If you're already a follower of Christ, if he's already your older brother, what's the biggest need that he can help you with? Uh, maybe maybe you're, you're not seeking him currently. Maybe you're relying on old, th- old lessons you learned a long time ago, but you're not seeking through the word and prayer and fellowship. Maybe that's your biggest need. Or maybe there's some temptation that threatens everything that you hold dear in this life. Are you going to let him, as your older brother and faithful high priest, help you? Whatever you need, bring it to God as we come to the Lord's table. So if you're a follower of Christ, we would love it if you would join us at the Lord's table. If you didn't pick up the elements on the way in, feel free to slip out. We've got those uh, in, the, in the lobby there. But I'm gonna give you just a couple of minutes to think about the things that we've, we've discussed here today. And uh, this is a time just to be humble and honest with God. What is your biggest need? Talk with him about that now.
On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to remember the body and blood of Christ. Thank you that he became one of us out of love, out of this, this family commitment to your family. We pray, God, that this might fill us with joy and fill us with worship this season, that when we think of Christmas, we would think of his commitment to us as family. As we walk into this, this new week, we pray that we would allow him to do for us what only he could do. Pray, God, that you would uh, show us where we're keeping our distance from him, where we're not receiving what he wants to give. And so we pray that this might be an amazing week of experiencing him and walking with him. We trust that you'll bring this to mind, put this on our hearts. May the spirit empower all of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.